Uh, my name is Nathan Jornstead. Uh, I've been at River City here now for uh, 10 years. Uh, next weekend, when all the, the students move in, I came to Fargo to attend NDSU, and I uh, pursued a career in software. Uh, since that time, I have met my wife, Morgan. Uh, we were married by Charlie uh, on a beach in Michigan, which was fun. Uh, we now have three wonderful kids with a fourth on the way, hopefully arriving in late October. Uh, and we serve in various capacities, and I'm currently in the examination period for eldership here at River City. Uh, it's a joy to stand before you today to preach God's Word. And I'm particularly excited to preach on this text because it has, was fairly transformative in my understanding of the Psalms as a whole. And very soon, you'll understand why. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table there. Um, once you have one, we'll be looking at Psalm 22, so you can turn there now. A few years back, I was having a difficult time understanding some of the psalms. So I decided to begin each morning reading a single psalm and then reading a commentary on that psalm by Charles Spurgeon, who wrote an amazing three-volume commentary entitled The Treasury of David, where he painstakingly walks through each verse in each psalm, providing helpful commentary to the reader. Now, as I began this process and read the first few psalms, it finally clicked in my mind. David was not only a shepherd, not only a mighty warrior, and not only a great king of Israel. David was a prophet. I had known of the Psalms being quoted as prophecies fulfilled, but I never put it together that this was a result of David being a prophet filled with God's Holy Spirit. As I continued reading through the Psalms, I finally landed here at Psalm 22. In this Psalm, the understanding of David of David as a prophet was forever solidified in my mind. No psalm is so clearly a vision of a time beyond David's. Many of these words may have been true in David's present suffering, but this is clearly a vision of something greater. This is a vision, and some people think potentially the exact words of the man of sorrows himself, the suffering servant, the blameless man. This psalm is a 1,000 years prior vision of the Lord Jesus Christ during his great sacrificial act on the cross. And we know this for several reasons. First, the New Testament authors quoted the psalm as referring to Christ in both John chapter 19 and Hebrews chapter 2, which in and of itself is enough to declare this is a psalm about Christ. Second, Christ directly quoted the first verse while on the cross, calling to mind the words of the psalm. And you'll see that when we read based on uh, what was just read. And finally, as you'll see when we read this psalm, there are extraordinary similarities between Christ's crucifixion account and the suffering and mocking described in this psalm. With this understanding going into it, let us read Psalm 22, often called the Psalm of the Cross, seeing our Lord as he hangs on that cursed tree. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. Like a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, David. Lord, we just pray that you would use this fallen body, Lord, to proclaim divine truths this morning and that your word would be known. Soften the hearts of the people here, Lord, that they would hear your word to them this morning. In your son's holy name, amen. In 1940, the first female licensed watchmaker in Holland never could have imagined what her next few years would entail. At 48 years old, Corrie ten Boom led a slow, simple life of working in the family business with her father, reading scripture every morning over breakfast, spending most of the day working in the, the watch shop downstairs, and the evening spent reading scripture and listening to her father's new radio. One evening, they stayed up later than normal to listen to a much 
anticipated speech from the Dutch Prime Minister. Many of the surrounding countries were now embroiled in what would become known as World War II. And one question was to be answered on that night's broadcast. Would there be war for Holland? The broadcast ended with the Prime Minister reassuring the country that the Dutch would not be going to war and that there was nothing to fear. But just five hours after the speech, Coria awoke to the sounds of explosions and an orange glow. Germany had invaded the Netherlands. Soon there began to be more and more stories of Jews being taken by the German occupiers in the night to a place no one knew where. And Corrie began leading an effort of smuggling Jews to wherever there would be safety. Their home and watch shop became the headquarters of the underground movement. And by the end of the war, around 800 Jews were believed to have been saved by her efforts. However, the German occupation soon became aware of what was going on. And Corrie and her family were arrested. She then spent next, the next 10 months in various concentration camps being put to work with little food and suffering extreme malnourishment, disease, and cold. Her father was thrown into an unmarked grave. Her sister eventually succumbed to disease. And finally, Corey was suddenly released due to a miraculous clerical error. How could God allow such suffering? What good could come from such terrible circumstances? And how would a Christian such as Corey respond to what happened to her? How would you respond? My proposition for us this morning is the following. As we feel the effects of sin in the world and in our lives, we must remember God's past deliverance and turn to Him for our future deliverance. And I'll, re- I'll repeat that. As we feel the effects of sin in this world and in our lives, we must remember God's past deliverance and turn to Him for our future deliverance. I have titled this sermon, The Lord's Great Deliverance, and have broken it up into three main points. The first 21 verses are a back and forth between a crying out or a describing of suffering on one hand and remembering the Lord's faithfulness on the other. So point one is recognizing the weight of sin, covering verses 1 and 2, 6 through 8, and 12 through 18. And point number two is remember God's deliverance, verses 3 through 5, 9 through 11, and 19 through 21. Following that, verses 22 through 29, I've designated as point number three, respond to God's deliverance. And finally, we will take the last two verses as a conclusion and an encouragement to us today. So let us begin by looking at point number one, recognize the weight of sin. The opening sentence is quoted in the famous words of our dying Savior. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The gravity of those words coming from the mouth of the second person of the Trinity cannot be overstated. In order to bring restoration and reconciliation between God and mankind, God had to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life and die for our sins. God the Father poured out his full cup of his wrath, reserved for us on his only begotten son. Of all the pain and suffering that Christ endured that day, his greatest suffering and one in which this psalm begins, was in being forsaken by the Father. It is a great and terrible thought 
to consider the Lord's hand being taken away from you. Yet, this will be the reality of those who do not believe. Verse 2 reads, O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. One can picture David calling out to God all throughout a sleepless night, but hearing no response from God. This also calls to mind the suffering of Christ the night before his crucifixion, when he was so distressed that he sweat drops of blood. Have you ever felt like God was not listening? That God was not hearing your cry? Have you called out to God in the midst of suffering and did not hear an answer? When I was nine years old, I went through one of the most difficult trials that a child can endure. My dad had been diagnosed with cancer for years and had finally succumbed to his illness and passed away. In that time, there was much crying, much questioning of what God was doing. Why had God taken my father away from me? It is one thing for God to take someone away after a full life in their old age, but to take a young father away from his three young boys? It is a solemn but hopeful and comforting truth that God can use suffering and trials for his great purposes. His greatest act in history was one of great suffering at Golgotha. Being the favorite son of Jacob, Genesis describes how Joseph underwent great suffering from betrayal by his own brothers and spent two years in an Egyptian prison. However, after being released and given great power by Pharaoh, he saved the whole region from death through famine and could declare to his brothers who had betrayed him, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Job, whom the book of Job is named after, went through great suffering, but this suffering resulted in the wonderful final chapters of that book where we hear from God himself answering Job from the whirlwind. In a similar way, the suffering experienced from the death of my father did not result in more evil and suffering, but resulted in my surrendering to Christ, leading to a life of deep and lasting joy. It is okay for us to cry out to God amidst our suffering. Christ himself did it on the cross. He wants to hear from us and he longs to comfort us. But when we do cry out, we must never lose faith. We must still claim him as my God, as the psalmist declares multiple times in the psalm. Spurgeon writes of this verse in his Treasury of David, Our Lord continued to pray even though no comfortable answer came. And in this he set us an example of obedience to his own words. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. No daylight is too glaring and no midnight too dark to pray in. And no delay or apparent denial, however grievous, should tempt us to forbear from persistent pleading. Let that be an example for us. So moving on to verses 6 through 8 and 12 through 18, these, these describe physical or metaphorical sufferings as well as ridicule, mocking, and rejection of those surrounding the person of the psalm. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 12, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. 
Verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Well, there are many times in David's life when his life was in danger by those around him, whether it be Saul pursuing the man who would succeed him or his own son Absalom rebelling against him in an attempt to seize the throne. Christ, being the greater David and the fulfillment of the promised Messiah, was viewed as less than human, a a worm. So rejected and disgraced was he in the eyes of the people. Can you imagine what it would be like to be hanging from a cross and being surrounded by ridicule and mocking? To be thought of as so beneath them, to not even be shown pity is a terrible suffering, especially considering that Jesus had done no wrong. There may come a time when you, like Christ, may be ridiculed for your faith. Maybe, maybe some of you already have. Those at the cross taunted Christ for his faith. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Jesus alludes to this possibility multiple times throughout the Gospels. In what is called the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. During the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christians have been respected, accepted, and welcomed for a long time in this country. However, our culture and society are becoming increasingly hostile towards Christianity. Business owners are being sued for holding biblical positions on sexuality and marriage. Praying together on school grounds can get you fired or expelled. Holding to the truth of the Imago Dei, the belief that all mankind was created in God's image and that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus is increasingly being considered an inconsiderate and intolerable position when society would rather focus on what makes people different. What will you do when your time comes to be ridiculed for your faith? Will you stand for the truth in the face of opposition? Will you endure suffering that God's name might be praised? And how will you respond when they come after you? Well, we know how Christ responded. When the soldiers crucified him and hung him to die, Luke records Jesus' response. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is this how you respond to those who ridicule you for your faith? Do you recognize the weight of sin in each and every one of us, having grace and forgiveness for those who wrong you? I know I don't do this perfectly or even well at times. But we must, we must stand for the truth in the face of opposition, but we must do so in a winsome way. We should not be surprised when the world hates us. 
So we should not respond in anger and frustration, but rather with compassion and grace. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you is the command given to us from Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And he goes on, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Corey ten Boom understood what this looks like. After the war, Corey was traveling around the war-torn countries with a message of hope and forgiveness. One day, she was confronted by a former SS soldier that she recognized from a concentration camp. And she writes in her book, The Hiding Place, He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message. To think that, as you say, he has washed away my sins. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current passed from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, and this is Corey talking, that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on Christ's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself that is required. We are called to radical love, dear Christians. So let us in this way be lights in this broken world. David goes on to describe physical suffering, metaphorically, that he was going through and that the coming Messiah would endure. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is a pottery fragment, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Having heard the story of Christ's crucifixion for many years, some of us may have become desensitized to what Christ endured, but we must not let that be so. The Roman crucifixion was one of the most torturous executions ever devised by man. The victim hung by their hands and their feet with nails driven through. These were the only points by which one could support themselves, with every attempt to gain a little relief needing to be done by pulling and pushing on holes in their flesh. It was designed to use your own weight against you, with gravity pulling your body down and down and down relentlessly until at last your body failed and the victim's heart would either rupture under the strain or soldiers would come and break your legs and you would suffocate to death. It truly is a gruesome and merciless death. Which begs the question, why? Why was Jesus put through such torture? The answer is, you and me. Jesus died for our sins, taking our just and right penalty upon himself in our place so that we might have life eternal with him. As the hymn declares, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Your sin is the reason that Christ went to the cross, why he endured the horror of the cross. 
Isaiah writes, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Greater than the weight of his body pulling on his shoulders and his wrists and his hands was the weight of the sin that he bore on our behalf. Do you recognize the weight of your sin? Do you see your sin holding him to that cursed tree? Do you see the high cost of your sin? And do you see the payment that is required that the wages of sin is death? And do you recognize that this payment will be required of you if you do not take Christ's payment as your own? It is right for us to recognize the weight of sin's effect in separating us from him, in leading to a mocking of the truth, and then for us to see those things and cry out to God. It is right for us to recognize the weight of our sin, recognizing the payment that must be made for that sin, and then turning to Christ in repentance. So how did David endure the suffering? In the face of this great suffering, what truths gave Christ comfort and endurance to continue on? Because suffering is hard. For the answer to that, let's look at point number two. Remember God's deliverance as we look at verses 3 through 5, 9 through 11, and 19 through 21. Standing in the face of the suffering are interwoven reminders of God's faithfulness. After the cries of verse 1 and 2, verse 3 begins, Yet you. After the mocking of verse 6 and eight, or six through 8, verse 9 begins, Yet you. And after the misery described in verses 12 through 18, verses 19 begins, But you. If you haven't noticed yet, the Bible is filled with lots of wonderful buts and yets. <clears throat> and these are some of the best. So verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. And then it's shocking how similar those verses are to the words of the mockers in the psalm. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Like David in his day, and like Christ did on the cross, we can find hope and comfort in the Lord's past deliverance of his people, of those who are called on, who called on his name. They trusted and you delivered them. How firm is the one who trusts in the Lord for deliverance, like the man who built his house upon the rock. Then it's quoted, to you they cried and were rescued. What joy we can find in knowing that God hears our cries. Another part of the text, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. What shame and rejection we can endure knowing that God will not let us be ashamed. And oh, how wrong were the mockers of Christ to believe that he would be ashamed of the cross. The question that needs to be asked, how do we remember God's past deliverance of others? Where do we go to learn of his faithfulness to his people? Right here. We must go daily to his word, given to us here in this simple, easy, 
accessible book. We must pick it up, open it to anywhere in Scripture, and we will begin to see God's redemptive plan for His people. With the continual failure of His people to abide by His law and the promise of the coming perfect sacrificial lamb to pay for those transgressions by fulfilling the law and dying the death that we deserve. We see His deliverance of His people from the ark of Noah to the crossing of the Red Sea, from David slain of Goliath to the miraculous deliverance of Peter from prison. And we see His faithfulness to His promises, with promises throughout Scripture being fulfilled, one after the other. We are forgetful people. Some of us can't even remember what we had for breakfast this morning. We need that daily reminder of God's faithfulness which is so readily provided as daily sustenance in this book. In verse 9, the suffering servant turns from remembering God's deliverance of others to God's faithfulness in his own life. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. How has God been faithful to you? Where were you 10 years ago compared to where God has brought you now? What trials and tribulations has God already brought you through? And do you remember God's deliverance? That he saved you and made you whole on that good Friday? As Charlie once quoted, it is much easier to not worry so much when you remember that God has already taken care of your greatest need on the cross. So in the midst of suffering, do you cling to God's great deliverance of your life from the grave? That no matter what suffering you endure, Christ is already victorious and you will be with him in glory? The sufferer in this psalm then uses these recollections of God's deliverance and faithfulness to call upon the Lord for deliverance in the here and now. Be not far from me. Do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. We can look to the examples of God's deliverance of others and know that if we are his people, he will do the same for us. In crying to God in our distress, this serves as an example of what we can do. We can point to God's past deliverance of his people, of his past faithfulness to us, and ask God to deliver us in our present circumstances. And know this, he may not deliver you in the way that you think or want him to, but God will deliver you. And may this truth bring you comfort, that if you believe in Christ, God already has delivered you from your greatest enemy by the death described in this psalm. And God will one day wipe away every tear from your eye and when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. If remembering God's past deliverance was a comfort to the dying Savior, why wouldn't that be a comfort to us? Let us remember his payment on the cross for our sins and that our greatest need has already been addressed by Christ's sacrifice. How then should we respond to the Lord's deliverance? How should we respond when considering that we have already been delivered from death? 
How should we respond if God delivers us from our present circumstances? For that, we'll look at verses 22 through 29. For point number three, respond to God's deliverance. Now, verse 22 is a pivot point in this psalm. The tone is completely shifted. No longer is there any mention of the present suffering or crying out to God, but these verses are filled with joy and praise. It's as if the suffering servant has seen the joy set before him, and he has suddenly recalled the reason why he was enduring such suffering and why he came to earth in the first place. Verse 22, which I pointed out earlier, is quoted by the writer of Hebrews as referring to Christ. And then verse 23 read, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. In these two verses, we see a proper response to God's deliverance, praising him and sharing with others what he has done for you. While on the road to certain death, Christ is here found praising God and encouraging others to do the same. Well, if you're a Minnesota sports fan, you understand that you will always be hopeful that your team will win the championship, but you're also fairly certain that that will never happen. Many have described it as Minnesota's curse, but in one glimmer of hope, January 14, 2018, the Minnesota Vikings pulled off one of the greatest finishes in football history, later called the Minneapolis Miracle. In finishing the game with the 61-yard touchdown catch and run, Stefan Diggs delivered the Vikings from certain defeat against the New Orleans Saints in a playoff game. For days, every conversation seemed to be dominated by this great deliverance. Had the curse been broken? Could the Vikings finally pull it off and win a Super Bowl? We all know how that ended. But so easy it is for us to share with our friends that moment of deliverance. But so hard it is for us to share with our friends the far greater act of deliverance of Christ on the cross. Like Christ in the psalm, we must seek to be ready, willing, and excited to share with unbelievers and to celebrate with other believers the Lord's great deliverance from the curse of the fall. Verse 24 is another reminder of God's faithfulness to his promises. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God has not forgotten the curse of the fall. God has not forgotten your suffering, your pain, and your trials. God has not ignored what you are going through. He does not ignore your cries to him. He has heard, and he has responded. He sent Christ to bring true and lasting deliverance. Deliverance that will last through all time and into eternity. As the ending of verse 26 indicates, Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever from now and into eternity. Psalm 22 is an Old Testament prophecy that God's people would not be confined to the nation of Israel. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Christ's atoning sacrifice 
is not restricted by people, language, or race. Christ's sacrifice is for all who believe. And did you notice how those nations would come to be saved? They will first remember, second, turn, and third, worship. This is God's command to all who desire to be with him. This is the proper response to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We must first recognize our own sin and remember God's deliverance on, for us at Calvary. Second, we must turn from that sin in repentance, not just asking for forgiveness for our sins, but turning away from them, doing a 180, committing to living a different life. And then third, as we turn to him, and as he forgives us our trespasses and cleanses us from our sin, the only proper response is to respond in worship and praise. This is how we should respond to the Lord's great deliverance. This is God's great purpose and redemptive plan for you, if only you would turn and believe. And this is the story that Corey Ten Boom knew could heal a broken world after such great destruction. It is the message of God's great deliverance from our sins, the forgiveness we received on the cross that Good Friday that can change the world, not vengeance or wrathful punishment of those who sin against us. She spent the rest of her life traveling the world with God's message of deliverance to bring together those who were once enemies into the family of God, bringing a message of hope and peace and restoration. And then in verse 28, we are then reminded of the God whom we serve. It it reads, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. When all seems lost and the enemy seems to have won, remember that kingship still belongs to the Lord and that the nations have never nor will ever be able to overthrow or dethrone the king of kings. His throne does not seem empty, nor does he sleep, but he is always and forever Lord and king over all that is. This is a God who is worthy of a life of servitude. Have you acknowledged him as the king of your life? After all these verses that we've gone through in this prophetic psalm of such detail and accuracy, how could the psalm conclude? No man could craft such a story as has already been covered. No man could predict 1,000 years in advance the events of the cross so closely as this. What more is there that needs to be said? And what further truths could give our dying Savior comfort? Psalm 22 concludes in this way. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. As Christ approached his expiration, he found great joy in what was set before him. He looked forward to generations to come and saw his payment, his sacrifice, saving millions and millions of people, just like you and me, all around the world. He saw the gospel being shared from generation to generation, changing hearts and minds of those who hear it. He saw that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church that he was instituting, and that for the rest of time, his name 
would be forever proclaimed as Savior and King of the world, and His righteousness would be proclaimed wherever His name should be known. Now, a few months ago, during some trials for the truth that I was going through, I was sent an encouraging article posted on the Gospel Coalition by Alistair Begg, in, if I pronounce that right. <clears throat> in it, he offered his, this word of encouragement to the church. In the 1920s, Lord Rife helped to establish the British Broadcasting Corporation and served as its first director general. He was a somewhat severe man from the highlands of Scotland. As the BBC began to be carried along by the tide of secularism that swept through Britain in the 1960s, a young producer stood up in a meeting and said to Lord Rife that the world was changing, that the BBC did not need to continue with its religious programming. People were no longer interested in religion, he said, and the church was becoming increasingly obsolete. Lord Rife, who was six foot six, told this young man to take a seat. Then he stood up and said, The church will stand at the grave of the BBC. And you know what? It will. It will stand when the BBC and CNN and Fox as well dwindle and die. God's kingdom will stand when every organization and institution and empire meets its end. In concluding this amazing psalm, I would like to quote from two different hymns. The last verse of the old hymn, This is My Father's World, ends with this reminder of the Lord's kingship that I hope will serve as encouragement to those who are in the midst of suffering today. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. And as we will be singing to end our time here today, be encouraged by these lyrics taken from the last words of Christ and the last words of this psalm. It is finished, he has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with ragged voice and go bravely into battle, knowing he has won the war. It is finished. Lift your head and weep no more. Amen. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your son, for the sacrifice that he made on the cross for our sins, that we might have life and life eternal. We thank you, Lord, that your church will continue into eternity. We thank you that your word has been brought to us, that we might be able to respond and repent and believe. And Lord, help us to take what we learned here today to those who we meet and interact with in our lives, Lord, that they might find that joy and that peace and that hope that Christ's sacrifice brings to those who believe. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Amen.